Welcome to the Book of Mormon, a masterclass. This podcast is designed to help you come closer to Jesus Christ by seriously studying the Book of Mormon. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash the Book of Mormon. I'm excited to spend some time today exploring 2 Nephi chapters 3 through 5. Even though we only have three chapters that we're reading, there is lots to talk about. First, we'll see a 3,000-year-old prophecy come to pass. We'll learn some surprising details about the Psalm of Nephi. We'll ponder the faith of a lesser-known sister in the Book of Mormon. And we'll also do an exploration of the possible meanings of the skin of blackness, talked about in 2 Nephi chapter 5. So buckle up, because we have a lot of exciting things to discuss. As I think about 2 Nephi chapter 3, I'm reminded of the movie Shrek, where Shrek says that ogres have layers. I'm not sure if ogres really do have layers, but definitely 2 Nephi chapter 3 has layers. And there's a few little details that if we understand and are aware of, it will make this chapter a lot easier to understand. First, the phrase, the fruit of thy loins, or something like it, appears 20 times in this chapter. The phrase fruit of thy loins simply means your descendants. So we'll see a phrase like the fruit of thy loins or the fruit of the loins of Judah. That would just mean the descendants of Judah. So keep your eye on that phrase. Another layer to be aware of with this chapter is that it talks about four different Josephs. Lehi is talking to his son, Joseph. And then Lehi is going to quote extensively from the prophet Joseph, Joseph of Egypt, the one who was sold by his brothers, had the coat of many colors, but eventually became second in command to Pharaoh. And that Joseph is going to prophesy about Joseph Smith Jr. and even mention his father, Joseph Smith Sr. So if you can keep your eye on these different Josephs, that's a helpful way to understand 2 Nephi chapter 3. I think the most important layer to be aware of when studying this chapter, though, is to note who is speaking at any given point in time. If you take a look at 2 Nephi chapter 3, starting in verse 5, you see Lehi speaking. Then he quotes from Joseph of Egypt. It goes back to Lehi. He quotes Joseph again. And then Joseph of Egypt quotes the Lord. In fact, if you pay careful attention to who's speaking, the Lord is the main speaker in this chapter. It's Lehi quoting Joseph of Egypt, who's quoting the Lord. And you want to pay attention to who's speaking because when you see phrases like I, thy, he, the reference of the speaker is really important. For example, the Lord says, a choice seer will I, the Lord, raise up out of the fruit of thy loins, meaning one of Joseph of Egypt's descendants will be this choice seer. And he, this choice seer, shall be highly esteemed among the fruit of thy loins, meaning Joseph of Egypt's descendants. So in other words, this is a prophecy about a future seer, Joseph Smith, who will do a great work bringing forth the Book of Mormon that will bless the lives of the descendants of Joseph, meaning Joseph of Egypt. Now, we'll talk more about this prophecy in just a moment, but I want to highlight a scripture study technique. As you know, a major part of this course is to give us additional tools with our scripture study. And one of my favorites was introduced to me by my friend, Dave Butler, and I call it the God of. Dave explained that when he was younger, he would often read the scriptures thinking about 
what does this story tell me about Nephi or Abinadi? But he made a small tweak that really changed his scripture study when he started reading a story, asking himself, what does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about the God of Nephi, the God of Abinadi, and how they were operating in their lives? For example, we could consider the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that Abraham, he was in an impossible situation. He needed a miracle. The God of Abraham is a God who can do the impossible. Or consider Isaac. He was about to be sacrificed. The God of Isaac is a God who rescues. Or Jacob. Jacob didn't always do the right things. The God of Jacob is a God who offers second chances, a God of mercy. So we could extend this idea to the God of Joseph. For you remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. Joseph is one of those sons. So the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Well, Joseph is making a prophecy in 2 Nephi chapter 3, 3,000 years in advance. The God of Joseph is the God who knows the details. He plans far in advance. And I testify that he's planning far in advance for you and me, and he knows the details of our lives as well. Angelica, a member of our masterclass, shared a story about how she saw the details of God in her life. When my baby was about five months old, I went back to work full time. And after a few months of working full time, I realized that I really just wanted to be in her life more and I wanted to work less, but because I wanted to spend more time with my baby and, and raise her and because they're, they're just little for so long. And so I really prayed about how could I do it to spend more time with her. And the feeling that I got was that I needed to switch to being a part-time teacher instead of a full-time teacher. And I let my principal know that the next school year, I would only be teaching part-time. And when I came home, I told my husband, he was not happy that I had made this decision all by myself, although I knew it wasn't by myself. Um, but he told me, no, absolutely not. You have to go back. You have to tell your principal that you changed your mind, that... Um, you can't do that. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I want to spend more time with my baby and something will work out. We will figure it out. If we have to change this, this, and this, then I'm willing to do that. And um, a couple of weeks later, he ended up getting a promotion that was almost exactly the same amount of income that I was losing by going part-time, but he had really gotten a big promotion and it just was um, confirmation to me that God is in the details, that when we do the things that are, are in our heart, that he's telling us that are the right thing to do, that he will take care of the rest. Truly, God is in the details. I wish I would have known what 2 Nephi 3 teaches about the Book of Mormon when I was back in high school. I grew up in an area where there were lots of people who were antagonistic towards the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Often people would come up to me and say, John, why does your church have the Book of Mormon? Why do you have to add to the Bible? It was as though the Book of Mormon was putting down the Bible. But in 2 Nephi chapter 3, we actually learned that the purpose of the Book of Mormon is not to put down the Bible, it's to strengthen the Bible. Let's take a look at chapter 3, verse 11. 
the Lord says, the Book of Mormon will be for the convincing them of my word, which shall have already gone forth among them. In other words, the Bible. Verse 12, the fruit of thy, meaning Joseph of Egypt's loins, shall write. Now, the descendants of Joseph, they write the Book of Mormon. So there will be the Book of Mormon and the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write. The descendants of Judah write the Bible. So it's talking about the Bible and the Book of Mormon. It says, that which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins, the Book of Mormon, and that which shall be written by the descendants of Judah shall grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines, bringing people to the knowledge of my covenants. In other words, the Bible and the Book of Mormon, they're not working against each other. They're growing together. They're helping people solidify in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. Second Nephi chapter 3 isn't the only place where we get this type of idea that the Book of Mormon is strengthening the Bible. If we were to go back to 1 Nephi chapter 13 in Nephi's incredible vision, he sees that the Gentiles who are coming from Europe to the New World bring a special book with them. It's not the Twilight series, it's the Bible. Nephi also sees the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and the angel tells him, These last records, the Book of Mormon, which thou hast seen among the Gentiles, shall establish the truth of the first, meaning the Bible. So the Book of Mormon is not to put down the Bible, it's to establish its truthfulness. Perhaps the clearest place we see this principle taught in the Book of Mormon is in Mormon's last words. Now, think of the prophet Mormon. He's been working on the Book of Mormon his entire life. Don't you think he thought carefully about what his last words would be? If we go to Mormon chapter 7, in Mormon's final words, he talks about how the Book of Mormon is to point us to the Bible. He writes, Lay hold upon the gospel of Christ, which shall be set before you, not only in this record, meaning the Book of Mormon, but also in the record which shall come forth unto the Gentiles from the Jews, which record shall come from the Gentiles unto you, clearly a reference to the Bible. Mormon goes on to say, For behold, this, the Book of Mormon, is written for the intent that ye may believe that, meaning the Bible. So a key purpose of the Book of Mormon is for us to believe in the Bible. Now that might sound like, I don't know, something that isn't really needed, but in my regular life, I have frequently come across attacks on the Bible. People who say, oh, the Bible can't be true for such and such a reason. For me, a knowledge of the Book of Mormon has strengthened my witness of the Bible. In my own life, I've seen the Book of Mormon and the Bible growing together to teach me about Jesus Christ. I love what Elder M. Russell Ballard taught. We tend to love the scriptures that we spend time with. We may need to balance our study in order to love and understand all scripture. Do not discount or devalue the Holy Bible. It is the sacred, holy record of the Lord's life. The Bible contains hundreds of pages more than all of our other scripture combined. The Book of Mormon testifies of the Bible, and both testify of Christ. To Elder Ballard's words, I simply say, Amen. Now, let's turn to 2 Nephi chapter 4. After blessing Joseph, Lehi gathers Laman's children together to give a blessing to them. So this is a blessing of grandchildren. Can you imagine the scene? We, we kind of know what's going to happen, but 
Try to picture it. Live it as if you were Lehi or Sariah. You've gathered your extended family together. Maybe layman's kids are teenagers, or maybe they're six or seven, or there might be a newborn. Can you imagine Sariah looking at them with a little tear in her eye, thinking to herself, I don't know if my grandkids are going to make it with Laman as their father. This, this is not good. You can see how this might have felt a little discouraging. I love Lehi's promise to his grandchildren. He says, I cannot go down to my grave, save I should leave a blessing upon you. For behold, I know that if ye are brought up in the way that ye should go, ye will not depart from it. Wherefore, if ye are cursed, behold, I leave my blessing upon you, that the cursing may be taken from you and be answered upon the heads of your parents. What does this teach us about the God of Lehi's grandchildren? They're in a difficult situation, but the God of Lehi's grandchildren is a God who helps the disadvantaged, a God who is looking out for those who don't have the same starting place as everybody else. So we don't know when Sariah passes away. It might have been before this. It could have been shortly after. But Nephi does tell us about Lehi passing away. And shortly after, he says, not many days after Lehi's death, Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael were angry with me because of the admonitions of the Lord. Now, following this, we're going to get the Psalm of Nephi, which we'll dive into in a lot more depth in just a moment. But I want to jump ahead to 2 Nephi chapter 5, verse 1, where in this context of Laman, Lemuel, the sons of Ishmael murmuring against him, we read, I, Nephi, did cry much unto the Lord my God because of the anger of my brethren. And behold, the Lord did a miracle, and my brothers were nice to me. Isn't that an amazing passage? Now, of course, the only problem with that passage is I made it up, at least the second part about the Lord doing a miracle and his brothers being nice to them. Let's read what the verses actually say. I, Nephi, did cry much unto the Lord my God because of the anger of my brethren. But behold, their anger did increase against me, insomuch that they did seek to take away my life. In some ways, this is a discouraging passage. Nephi is pouring out his heart to the Lord, and he doesn't get what he asks for. For me, though, it can also be a hopeful passage. It's a reminder that in my life, there's probably going to be times when I'll be praying for a righteous thing, and it won't come to pass because it's not the Lord's will at that time. I shouldn't be surprised. I shouldn't go complaining about it because Nephi experienced the same thing. So it's in this context that we get the Psalm of Nephi. Nephi's feeling alone, embattled. His father's died. His brothers are criticizing him, even seeking to take away his life. In my mind, I picture Nephi turning to the Old Testament Psalms. Maybe they were written on the brass plates, or maybe he had learned them before leaving Jerusalem. And as he's thinking about these Old Testament Psalms, he starts pouring out his heart. Think about these beautiful words. My heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am, yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh. My soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. Rejoice, O my heart, cry unto the Lord, and say, O Lord, I will praise thee forever. Yea, my soul will rejoice in thee, my God, and the rock of my salvation. 
O Lord, wilt thou redeem my soul? Wilt thou deliver me out of the hands of mine enemies? Wilt thou make me that I may shake at the appearance of sin? Now we can read the Psalm of Nephi with the lens of looking for those powerful one-liners, these scriptural phrases that are so impactful. Another scripture study technique that I like to do sometimes is to draw out or sketch what the scriptures are teaching. Now, I failed art in sixth grade, so when I do this technique, I use artificial intelligence art generators to help me. And I was really intrigued about this phrase from Nephi, wilt thou make me that I may shake at the appearance of sin? So I plugged in this phrase into an artificial art generator, and you can see on the screen the images that I got of shaking at the appearance of sin. I don't know if I like these images very much. You could probably draw a better one. In my mind, I was picturing a person in a, I don't know, some kind of situation where sin was present and starting to shake and tremble. In my own life, I don't want sin to be attractive to me. I want to become like Nephi. I want to pray that the very appearance of sin will make me shake or be distasteful to me. Now, there's another lens that we can use with the Psalm of Nephi, and that is seeing how Nephi's Psalm is actually very similar in structure and even in phrases to Old Testament Psalms. One scholar has pointed out that within the Old Testament Psalms, there are different types. One is called an individual lament, which has five structural units, invocation, complaint, confession of trust, petition, and a vow of praise. Nephi's psalm follows this exact same structure. And not only that, there are several phrases from the Old Testament psalms that we see in Nephi's own writings. Let me just point some of these out from the same passage we just looked at. Look at the words on the screen in yellow. Cry unto the Lord. I will praise thee forever. My soul will rejoice in thee, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Redeem my soul. Deliver me out of the hands of my enemies. If we keep going in this passage, we see more examples. May the gates of hell be shut continually before me. My heart is broken. My spirit is contrite. O Lord, wilt thou not shut the gates of thy righteousness before me, that I may walk in the path of the low valley? There are about 40 different Old Testament Psalms that Nephi is referring to. And I think there's a couple of cool things about this. One, and this is definitely something I would not base my testimony of the Book of Mormon on, but I think it's completely ludicrous to think that Joseph Smith is making this up. From the timeline of the translation process, we know that Joseph Smith translates the Psalm of Nephi in less than two hours. And we know that he has no notes as he's translating. So to think that Joseph Smith knows the individual lament psalm structure so well, and he can integrate all of these different phrases from Old Testament psalms into the psalm of Nephi, that is completely ridiculous. Again, don't base your testimony of the Book of Mormon on this, but to me, this is evidence that Joseph Smith did not write the Book of Mormon. This is Nephi. He's familiar with the Old Testament psalms. Maybe he's even pouring over them in the brass plates as he's writing his own record. We can find great strength from the Old Testament psalms. One kind of meta message for me from this passage is Nephi in his difficult times turned to the Psalms and I can as well. Many of us aren't as familiar with the Old Testament Psalms as we could be. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland wrote a beautiful book called For Times of Trouble, Spiritual Solace 
from the Psalms. And if you're interested in digging more deeply into the Old Testament Psalms, I've linked to his book on the course website. But let's keep going and finish with what Nephi wrote. He said, I will lift up my voice unto thee. Yea, I will cry unto my God, the rock of my righteousness. Behold, my voice shall forever ascend up unto thee, my rock and my everlasting God. Now, as we turn to 2 Nephi chapter 5, this is the story of a family fracturing. We know already what's going to happen, so maybe it's not as intense to us as it should be. But this is a story of aunts and uncles leaving nieces and nephews, cousins being separated forever, and brothers and sisters leaving those that they love. I want to highlight in the story of Nephi and his family leaving a lesser known individual, someone that we don't even know her name. Nephi does tell us, though, that among the group of those who left were some of his sisters. We know from Joseph Smith that some of Nephi's sisters had married Ishmael's sons, and there may have been other sisters that we don't know of as well. But I just want to choose one of these women, and I'm going to call her Rachel. So let's think about Rachel. Maybe she's the wife of one of the sons of Ishmael. Her husband hates Nephi, but she believes in his words. She has three children, an eight-year-old, a four-year-old, and a newborn. And Nephi comes up to her one afternoon and says, Hey, sis, we're heading out. Do you want to come with us? Can you imagine what Rachel is feeling at this moment? Can she really leave her husband? Can she bring any or all of her children? She knows that whatever choice she makes is going to have a huge impact on the rest of her life and all of her posterity. From Rachel, we learn that sometimes you have to walk away from what you love in order to walk towards Jesus Christ. Rachel makes a decision to follow the prophet. She goes with Nephi and changes her life and the life of her descendants forever. I'm reminded of a modern woman like Rachel. Her name is Jane. When Jane was 17 years old, she lived in Michigan. This is during the time period of Joseph Smith and some missionaries came, taught Jane's family the gospel, and they decided to move to Nauvoo. But at the last moment, on the morning when they were going to leave, her father determined that the family would not go to Nauvoo. They would stay right where they were. And so Jane, then a 17-year-old young woman, had a really difficult decision to make. She chose to join with the saints in Nauvoo. Eventually, she married a man named Levi Savage, and the two of them had a child, Levi Mather Savage. He was actually Jane's only child, but he went on to have a large posterity, and I'm so grateful to Jane. She's my, excuse me, she's my great-great-grandmother. And because she chose to walk away from a family that she loved, even though it was incredibly hard, she chose to walk towards Jesus Christ, and that has had a huge impact on me today. Who knows, perhaps you or I later today are going to be faced with a difficult decision. And by our choosing to walk towards Jesus Christ, we will bless not only our own lives, but the lives of our future descendants. I'm so grateful for Jane, for Nephi's sisters, for their faithful examples in following Jesus Christ. Now, as Nephi and his family separates from Laman, Lemuel, and the others, he tells us an interesting phrase. He says, we lived after the manner of happiness. I think I might have said we lived after the manner of loneliness or discouragement, but you can tell that Nephi is focusing on the positive. 
The manner of happiness that I might think of could be ice cream, social media, watching movies, but that's not what brought Nephi and his followers happiness. As we look in 2 Nephi chapter 5, we see many principles of happiness. Nephi tells us that they kept the commandments. The Lord was with them. They worked hard. They focused on the scriptures. They had families. They were prepared. They built things. And they had a temple. We might not be able to do all of these things in our lives, but we can focus on many of them. And doing so will bring us happiness. Now, before we conclude today, I want to look at a topic that is first brought up in 2 Nephi 5 and appears at other times in the Book of Mormon that can be somewhat challenging. It has to do with skin color in the Book of Mormon. In 2 Nephi chapter 5, speaking of his brothers, Nephi says, The Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. What does this passage mean? And at the outset, I want to say that there are lots of nuances. We could probably spend hours talking about this passage, but I want us to first step back and look at a key verse in the Book of Mormon that I think is important to pull up front and center in this discussion. It's 2 Nephi chapter 26, verse 30, where we read that Jesus Christ invites all to come unto him and partake of his goodness. He denieth none that come unto him black and white, bond and free, male and female, all are alike to him. Consider too what modern church leaders have taught. President Russell M. Nelson said, God does not love one race more than another. Your standing before God is not determined by the color of your skin. Favor or disfavor with God is dependent upon your devotion to God and his commandments, and not the color of your skin. Today, I call upon our members everywhere to lead out in abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice. I plead with you to promote respect for all of God's children. And President Dallin H. Oaks said, As citizens and as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we must do better to help root out racism. Let's look at the four key Book of Mormon passages about skin color. And what I want to do is read all of the verses first and then talk about different approaches we can take to them. So stick with me because this is going to be a lot of scripture all at once, but I think it will be helpful for us in really unpacking and understanding what these verses are and are not saying. In 2 Nephi chapter 5, Nephi says, The Lamanites had hardened their hearts against the Lord, that they had become like unto a flint. Wherefore, as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, the Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. And thus saith the Lord God, I will cause that they shall be loathsome unto thy people, save they shall repent of their iniquities. And cursed shall be the seed of him that mixeth with their seed, for they shall be cursed even with the same cursing. And the Lord spake it, and it was done. And because of their cursing, which was upon them, they did become an idle people, full of mischief and subtlety, and did seek in the wilderness for beasts of prey. In the next generation, the prophet Jacob, Nephi's brother, spoke to his people. He said, Behold, the Lamanites, your brethren, whom ye hate because of their filthiness and the cursing which hath come upon their skins, are more righteous than you. For they have not forgotten the commandment of the Lord, which was given unto our father, 
that they should have, save it were one wife, and concubines they should have none, and there should not be whoredoms committed among them. And now this commandment they observe to keep. Wherefore, because of this observance in keeping this commandment, the Lord God will not destroy them, but will be merciful unto them. O my brethren, I fear that unless ye shall repent of your sins, that their skins will be whiter than yours, when ye shall be brought with them before the throne of God. Wherefore, a commandment I give unto you, which is the word of God, that ye revile no more against them because of the darkness of their skins. Neither shall ye revile against them because of their filthiness. But ye shall remember your own filthiness, and remember that their filthiness came because of their fathers. The next passage that we see about skins being light or dark in the Book of Mormon comes in Alma chapter 3, and it relates to the Amlicites. If you remember, the Amlicites had marked themselves. And in Alma chapter 3, Mormon, who's narrating here, makes a comparison between the Amlicite mark and the Lamanite mark. He writes, The Amlicites had set a mark upon them. Yea, they set the mark upon themselves, yea, even a mark of red upon their foreheads. Thus the word of God is fulfilled, for these are the words which he said to Nephi. Behold, the Lamanites have I cursed, and I will set a mark on them, that they and their seed may be separated from thee and thy seed from this time, henceforth, and forever, except they repent of their wickedness and turn to me, that I may have mercy upon them. And again, I will set a mark upon him that mingleth his seed with thy brethren, that they may be cursed also. And again, I will set a mark upon him that fighteth against thee and thy seed. Now the Amlicites knew not that they were fulfilling the words of God when they began to mark themselves in their foreheads. Nevertheless, they had come out in open rebellion against God. Therefore, it was expedient that the curse should fall upon them. Now I would that ye should see that they brought upon themselves the curse, and even so doth every man that is cursed bring upon himself his own condemnation. One more passage. This one takes place in 3 Nephi chapter 2 at a time when many of the Lamanites were more righteous than the Nephites. We read, Those Lamanites who had united with the Nephites were numbered among the Nephites, and their curse was taken from them, and their skin became white like unto the Nephites. And their young men and their daughters became exceedingly fair, and they were numbered among the Nephites and were called Nephites. To our modern ears, some of these passages might sound troubling or even racist. It's important to note that if the skin color of the Lamanites did actually change, that does not mean that God gave dark skin as a curse. Several Book of Mormon verses make it clear that the curse was being separated from God and the negative consequences that are associated with this separation. A recent statement from the church declares, Today, the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present, in any form. So let's talk about what these passages might mean, and I want to explore three different possibilities. First, we have the literalist view, which suggests that the skin color of Laman and Lemuel's descendants really did change. Those who are proponents of this view would say that phrases like a skin of blackness did come upon them or their skins did become white are talking about literal changes in pigmentation of skin color. 
Some people might think that that happens miraculously all at once, or that it's happening in the process of time. The literalist approach has been the traditional view of these passages, and in some ways is the most straightforward reading of the text. So that's caused some people to wonder, is the Book of Mormon racist? I was interested in this insight from scholars Nicholas Frederick and Joseph Spencer about how if, in fact, it is the literalist viewpoint that's correct, it may show us that the Book of Mormon is anti-racist. They write, in most passages, it seems clear to us that white and black indeed refer to skin pigmentation. So there really are serious and difficult race problems within the Book of Mormon. In our view, however, this makes the Book of Mormon more rather than less relevant to the 21st century. The book shows us what it looks like when a people develop systemic racism. What we're reading when we read the Book of Mormon is a long and deeply relevant history of wickedness that ultimately ends in destruction, while the racially out of favor are slowly revealed to be a chosen and preserved people. The last prophet, Mormon, asks us to hear at length a dark-skinned prophet, the remarkable Samuel. Thus we find in the Book of Mormon a richly cautionary tale regarding racism and racialism. These authors argue that if the literalist viewpoint is correct, then perhaps the Book of Mormon is showing us the dangers of racism and encouraging us to move in a better direction. But this isn't the only approach. Let's take a look at a second approach, the metaphorical approach. Many scholars point out that race is a modern construct and suggest that Book of Mormon peoples wouldn't have focused on skin color. They suggest the, the idea of Nephites exhibiting systemic racism is imposing modern viewpoints on ancient people. These scholars believe that references to skins being white or dark are metaphors for people's righteousness. Similar metaphors are used in the Bible. For example, Paul writes, What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? Proponents of the metaphorical view would point to Jacob's words when he said, I fear that unless ye shall repent of your sins, that their skins will be whiter than yours when ye are brought with them before the throne of God. To suggest that the idea of skins being white before God, this is a metaphor. It's not that your skin color is actually going to be whiter or darker before God. It's a metaphor for righteousness. They also highlight 2 Nephi chapter 30, verse 6 in which Nephi says that when the descendants of the Lamanites learn about Jesus Christ, their scales of darkness shall begin to fall from their eyes, and many generations shall not pass away among them, save they shall be a pure and delightsome people. This is an especially interesting passage because in the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, the phrase read, white and delightsome people. Joseph Smith later changed it to be a pure and delightsome people. So proponents of the metaphorical view would say that Joseph Smith is seeing the words white and pure as synonyms, suggesting that a light skin or a dark skin is a metaphorical way of expressing righteousness. In addition, earlier in that same verse, it talks about scales of darkness falling from the eyes. That sounds metaphorical. Other similar passages exist in the Bible, like Job saying, my skin is black upon me. Or Jeremiah's lament over the capture of Jerusalem, our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. Surely these aren't passages that are meant to be read literally. So what if the metaphorical point of view is correct? What conclusions might we draw? I think one thing that we see is our skin color doesn't matter. What matters is our faithfulness before God. As Nephi wrote, 
The Lord esteemeth all flesh in one. He that is righteous is favored of God. Now, a third approach to skin color in the Book of Mormon is to think of references to skins being about clothing or possibly skin paint or tattoos. Consider this passage from Alma chapter 3, where the word skins is used twice in quick succession. Now, the heads of the Lamanites were shorn, and they were naked, save it were skin, which was girded about their loins, and also their armor, which was girded about them, and their bows and their arrows and their stones and their slings and so forth. And the skins of the Lamanites were dark, according to the mark which was set upon their fathers. Scholar Ethan Sprout, who's a proponent of this viewpoint, writes, This passage suggests the possibility that the skins of the Lamanites are to be understood as articles of clothing, the notable girdle of skins that these particular Lamanites wear to cover their nakedness. If both instances of skins in Alma 3, 5, and 6 refer to clothing, then the other five references to various colored or cursed skins in the Book of Mormon could also refer to clothing and not, as traditionally assumed, to human flesh pigmentation. Further evidence that the mark may be something other than skin color comes as Mormon equates the mark of the Amlicites with the mark of the Lamanites. He says, The Amlicites set the mark upon themselves, yea, even a mark of red upon their foreheads. Thus the word of God is fulfilled, for these are the words which he said to Nephi. Behold, the Lamanites have I cursed, and I will set a mark on them. And again, I will set a mark upon him that fighteth against thee and thy seed. The Amlicites set a mark upon themselves, and this is compared to the Lamanite mark, which has caused some to think that perhaps the Lamanite mark might have been clothing that they were wearing, or skin paint, or tattoos. So we've looked at three different approaches to these passages, a literalist view, a metaphorical view, or a view where skins are talking about clothing or some other type of identification. Ultimately, we don't know which of these approaches, if any of them, are right. It might be something else altogether. As the church's Come Follow Me manual says, the nature and appearance of this mark are not fully understood. The mark initially distinguished the Lamanites from the Nephites. Later, as both the Nephites and Lamanites each went through periods of wickedness and righteousness, the mark became irrelevant as an indicator of the Lamanites standing before God. Before we leave this topic, I want to emphasize that taken holistically, the Book of Mormon is radically inclusive. Consider just a few examples. The Lord explicitly condemns anti-Semitism. Nephites who look down on Lamanites are condemned by the prophet Jacob. The prophet Mormon teaches that any kind of persecution of descendants of the house of Israel, like Jews or Native Americans, is evil. Nephite Book of Mormon authors express loving concern for the Lamanites and pray for them. Nephites and Lamanites preach the gospel to each other. Lamanites and Nephites work together against evil forces. Nephites and Lamanites give each other land during difficult times. The Book of Mormon has so many passages, more than a hundred, that are explicit about the inclusive nature of Jesus Christ. Consider just a few examples. From the title page of the Book of Mormon, we read, The Book of Mormon is for the convincing of Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations. One being is as precious in his sight as the other. God is mindful of every people. 
The Lord's arm is extended to all people who will repent and believe on his name. The gate of heaven is open unto all who will believe on the name of Jesus Christ. Over and over again, we see an inclusive message in the Book of Mormon. Now, I know what you're thinking to yourself, Brother Hilton, I'd love to see all of these 100 passages about inclusivity in the Book of Mormon. Well, wish granted. I've linked to an article that contains them, as well as several other articles that unpack the different approaches that we've talked about today, if this is a topic that you'd like to dig deeper into. But for now, I want to come back to the words of our modern church leaders. President Russell M. Nelson said, The creator of us all calls on each of us to abandon attitudes of prejudice against any group of God's children. Any of us who has prejudice towards another race needs to repent. President Oaks said, Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can unite and bring peace to people of all races and nationalities. We who believe in that gospel, whatever our origins, must unite in love of each other and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I testify of the reality of Jesus Christ, that He loves all people. I want to conclude with Nephi's words. Remember, Nephi taught that Jesus Christ invites all to come unto Him and partake of His goodness. He denies none that come unto Him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. All are alike to Him. Thank you for listening today. We hope you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps others discover it. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash the Book of Mormon. We hope to see you there.